Welcome to the Sisters on the Front Lines podcast, where we unite with Christ to combat the shame surrounding young women struggling with pornography and share our stories and insights to gather more tools and weapons to fortify our stance on the front lines in the war against pornography. Okay, welcome to this next episode of the Sisters on the Frontlines podcast. This one is a little bit different than what we have been doing before. So up until this point, we've just had girls come on and share their stories, and it's been awesome. But I hope that this is kind of the the kickstarter to a new phase of the podcast because we have a professional in this area. Her name is Dr. Julie Fraumeni McBride. <laughs> Hard to pronounce. <laughs> But she's awesome. She, like I said, she has a PhD. She wrote her dissertation on women's pornography use and sexuality education in U.S. public schools. So she is so well-versed in this stuff. And I'm so grateful that she was willing to come on and let me pick her pick her brain. So before we dive into kind of the interview portion, I just want to hear, give us a short little bio on on who you are, Julie. Thanks, Maddie. Being on is definitely my honor. This is why I'm here. And so I'm grateful that we found each other and we can chat about this. I'm Julie. Like you said, I, I'm a mom of six kiddos and a researcher. And I am the director of research and development for the Steadfast Institute. It's a pornography recovery institute where we do research specifically on developing evidence-based programs for men for women and for youth sexuality education, as well as marriage programs and sexuality enhancement programs for couples. And so I spend the majority of my time either doing research with different peers and colleagues in the field or developing programs for the Institute. I am also married to a very, very very good looking husband who I work with as well. I grew up in the Virginia DC area and in Russia. I came over here when I was when I was little, born here, went to Russia because my mom's Russian and didn't speak any English and, and now barely speak any Russian. So <laughs> wow. <laughs> me. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. And you said you're 32, right? Yep, I'm 32. Okay. Cool. 32. Cool, cool. And oh. does your husband work like at the Steadfast Institute with you or? Yeah. Yeah, he does. He has a background in counseling and social work. And so he helps a lot of the clinical pieces of the work and then a lot of the business and strategic marketing aspects of the programs. And so that's part of what he does. He does some other larger business ventures as well, but. Okay. Super cool. And you guys met at BYU, right? He was not at BYU. I was at BYU. He was in Southern Utah at what I think it's called Utah Universe. I don't know what it's called. Utah Tech, I think. Utah Tech. Yeah, Utah Tech. At the time, it was Dixie. And uh, yeah, we met at a leadership conference. I was actually on one of the vice presidents on BYUSA. And then he was one of the vice presidents at Dixie at the time in Salt Lake at a leadership conference (laughs) and got married very, very quickly thereafter (laughs) and started making lots of babies. (laughs) (laughs) that's so cool oh that's awesome yeah six children holy cow that's amazing but I'm sure so fun and fulfilling (laughs) (laughs) okay well perfect well so I just have 
So Julia and I talked on the phone yesterday and ran through this and everything was seriously so interesting. And I'm like going through the questions. I'm like, can I even take any of these out? Like everything she said was so good. So I am expecting this to be a little bit of a longer episode, but I can promise you she is so well-versed and so articulate. You will not want to miss. Just put it on 2x speed. You have the time. (laughs) So, okay. First question. What data do we have about like the number of girls, I guess, relative to boys and and also like the different ages? Because I've heard I've heard so many different things. I've heard like 30 percent women, 40 percent women, like 60 percent. So what do we have out there? Yeah. So so like we talked about the nationally representative samples that are a little outdated, they in the past have said like 30 percent girls compared to boys in the 90 percent viewing pornography. But we know that that's not really 100 percent accurate because there's been other studies that have come out that have given ranges anywhere from like 40 to 60 to even 70 percent of women using pornography. And we know that continues to increase not only because of the strategic marketing strategies that uh, different porn industries use to try to take in a larger audience, but also because of just evolving social movements and women feeling more entitled, which is a good thing, to learning more about their sexuality, but not so great that they're being drawn into the same industry that has for a long time been known to capture men's attention. So Mm -hmm. yeah. How do they, how do they like determine like that 30% that are using pornography like what does that even mean like do they have a frequency do they have how do they qualify that yeah so so the studies that have shown that that they're not always even 100% reliable because of the way they ask the questions. Okay. Uh, so one of the most recent tool, survey tools that has come out, a validated scale, was developed by Dean Busby and Brian Willoughby, actually at BYU. And it's one of the most reputable scales currently available. Later, Nathan Leonhardt, who is also a professor, Lenhart, sorry, who's also a professor at BYU now, came in and helped with that scale as well. And those those three developed this scale that specifically quantified and asked specific questions relating to pornography so that the definition of pornography was not as hazy as it previously was in other studies. And that's been a really big issue in the pornography and sexuality research field is people having different definitions of what pornography is and how they define it and understand mm-hmm. it. And so some of those studies just wouldn't be 100% accurate because of that. Okay, that makes sense. And that that scale is like fully developed, fully out right now, or are they still working on it? Yeah, so it's a it's a validated scale. It's fully developed. I used it in my dissertation study. Um, it is made to be a general scale for men and women. It's not specifically for either gender. And so we're going to be working on making a specific scale for women, but for the most part, it's a, it's a pretty reliable scale and it's the best thing available right now. Okay, cool. And can you talk about some of like the, the, what would even be different in the questions that you're asking the men versus women or why there would be, you know, why even, why not use just a general scale for both? Yeah. So for right now, like I said, that's the best scale available. But if if we're going to be looking specifically at a, a women's validated scale, some pieces we would be looking at are that women tend to use more lesbian 
lesbian genre pornography. And so you'd want to look at questions specifically to that genre and ask it in a variety of ways. You'd also want to look at erotica, which is short literature, which tends to be what women look at more than men and ask different questions related to that. Whereas the scale just generally glazes over questions in that vicinity and doesn't really dive in depth into that. And as well, we're also learning about how like lesbian women might be pornography different than heterosexual women. And so you, you want to be able to capture those nuances within a scale specifically for women, because it wouldn't be the same for men and women. Yeah. Okay. That totally makes sense. And you, you mentioned like the, the erotica or the written, like pornography is more common for women. Can you talk about like the reasons why? Because I've that's something that I've heard so much is like, yeah, the written stuff, written stuff appealed to me, the visual stuff, not as much, especially for women. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I, I couldn't answer fully why women use it. I just know based off the research that I've done, the qualitative studies, the qualitative study that I've completed with women that perceive their pornography used to be harmful. And the reason that they appear to gravitate towards the erotic erotica and, and other uh, literature that is available to us is because one they feel like it's not harming women women seem to be a lot more concerned about the actresses in pornography and how they're being affected whether they're being trafficked whether they're being harmed in any way in the production and so they become a little bit concerned about that element and so erotica is appealing in that regard uh, erotica also has this interesting emotional element that a lot of women are drawn to where the stories capture this more er- erotic romantic theme and sequence that hits at the heart of this script or story that a lot of women are looking for about being desired in this highly erotic but emotional way and so they become really drawn to these stories it leaves more for the imagination it 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 speaks to this emotional piece that women seem to be really drawn to and those are some of the main reasons that women tend to be drawn to this and the more I, I somehow the writing, the reading ties into their emotions in a way that like viewing the pornography doesn't in the same way, or at least the typical videos that are available. But that's as much as we know right now and yeah. hope to learn more. Yeah, that's super interesting. And so yesterday when we were talking, you mentioned that like the the porn use for women seems to cause more damage than to men. And it's kind of harder to reconcile, I guess, what what they would feel is that double life. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. And so when I say it appears to be more harmful for women, that's definitely anecdotal. That's, you know, kind of a educated assumption that I Uh make use of the literature that's available in the studies that have been done. So I haven't had like a, like a validated, tested and proven way to, to state that. And so I don't want to say, Hey, like all the research is saying it's more harmful because Mm -hmm. that would be misleading, Uh, but it, it appears to be more harmful just anecdotally the way the women are talking about it. So when men talk about their porn use, they seem to be much more able to compartmentalize their porn use as being something very separate from their family life. at least when it's problematic, and they're able to carry on and still have good relationships with their wives and their children. And 
and and not to say that it doesn't affect them it, because it does, but they seem to be more able to compartmentalize it. Whereas the women that I've worked with seem to have a much more difficult time compartmentalizing the pornography use where the scripts that they've become so emotionally entrenched in that are paired with their own arousal and sexuality have seemed to cause a really deep divide in their partnered relationships or the pursuit of such where it's almost like they become so connected to these scripts in their sexuality that's tied to these scripts and emotions that the either the expectations for the relationship diminish or, di- or the, I guess the results of the relationship are diminished significantly in, in the satisfaction levels. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. So you're, we're talking about like the, the emotional connection, women like to have an emotional connection, I guess, with like what they're reading or viewing, but I've also heard, and like myself experienced, like feeling very numb as I was like viewing the pornography. So how do you, how do those two go, go hand in hand? Cause I actually agree with both, like, yeah, looking for an emotional connection, but also feeling numb. So I guess, how do those two go hand in hand? Right. So the feeling numb most likely is coming from the very reason that you're using pornography. Any woman using pornography or a man using pornography, not always, but if they began at any point being pornography in childhood and they've continued use throughout their their life, they're usually using in an effort to escape some kind of unwanted feeling or emotion or experience called experiential avoidance. And so usually the triggers for that are stress, anger, boredom, loneliness, getting in a fight with someone, feeling rejected, you know, not getting a date or like getting in an argument with your spouse, whatever it might be, losing a job. And so what they don't realize is that they've developed this automatic response, um, that we call a reliance that pornography has filled in for to help with releasing the serotonin and dopamine levels that have resulted in a temporary feeling of well-being. And so it, it becomes this reward system where if, if you began using pornography at a young age, you you become reliant on that dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin release to give you that feeling of well-being in times of distress or an absence of those good feelings. And so it, it creates this cycle. And the numbness, you know, every situation is complex, but the numbness very well often happens from trying to numb out pain. That's the, our body's response to any kind of trauma or pain if it's if it's that deep, right? It, mm-hmm. It's numbing. And so there's a there's a lot that we don't understand specifically with pornography use, but we have seen with women where they describe exactly what you're saying, that numbness, yet trying to experience a feeling. And so for some women, they might feel numb. Other women might not feel numb during that process. But if if you are feeling numb during that process, there's probably some complex trauma there and that you're probably seeking out some kind of antidote for that. And so it's intermixed with this whole experience with pornography or sexuality, seeking a stimulus. But as we discussed yesterday, um, there's a lot of explanations. So it could be that you have some kind of pre-existing condition. You have depression. You have ADHD. You need certain releases of chemicals that your your brain has an absence of. And so pornography can offer a temporary solution to that. And so 
someone that might be used to seeking pornography might be seeking it for those reasons, or it could be something that's been developed over time as a stress coping mechanism, boredom coping mechanism, and so on. And so it creates this cycle. And so you're going to feel a variety of emotions or numbness during that time. And everyone's situation is complex. And, and, you know, and that's what we do at the Steadfast Institute is really helping people break down what exactly is going on within their individual systems to create that cycle and helping them deconstruct that and rehabilitate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Super interesting. And so you, as you were talking about that, you mentioned a reliance and a cycle and not once did you use the word addiction. And we talk like you and I have talked a lot about like addiction models and how, I mean, it's super commonly used in Utah. And so why, why is the addiction model that we use? Well, first off, what is the addiction model that we use for treatment and why is it not as helpful? Yeah. So the addiction model has taken off as being this like leading program for addressing what's perceived to be porn addiction. A lot of times people don't understand what the term addiction means. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of debate in the field, a lot of hostility and back and forth about the definition of addiction and whether sex addiction or porn addiction is real. And what happened, especially in places like Utah, is this porn addiction term and model really developed before we had any kind of real research to support the model. And so a lot of these therapists and recovery groups, they've been trained for many years in this model, this addiction model. And so anytime they see anyone that experiences pornography use that they perceive as problematic, they go ahead and label them as an addict. They're saying, okay, you feel that it's bad. You feel like you can't stop. So you're an addict. The term's inappropriate. It doesn't meet the actual diagnostic criteria for addiction because it's not it's not seeking out some like art of artificial chemical like alcohol or tobacco or drugs. It's something within your own physiological body that's very natural and part of who you are. And so it's not the same. It doesn't meet the same criteria. There's not the same withdrawal symptoms. It doesn't mean that it doesn't feel as powerful as an addiction. It just needs a different label so that you can appropriately treat it. And so the correct term is really problematic pornography use. And the diagnostic term that's used internationally is sexual compulsivity. Um, and within that, you would have problematic pornography use. And the importance of distinguishing what it really is, is making sure that you have the correct treatment model. And the addiction model was set up, the 12-step program was set up for drug and alcohol recovery. And it's it doesn't work correctly for pornography recovery. And so you have a lot of places, especially in some of these places like Utah, where they're really well-meaning professionals. They've maybe seen their model work temporarily for people, or at least while they're in their programs. But in the long run, it actually makes the problem worse for the individuals that engage in these programs. And it doesn't actually help. And it actually might inhibit their sexuality in, in really significant ways causing issues with their sexuality and marriage. And they develop almost this condition where they think in order to abstain from pornography, they also have to have like this decline in their sexuality. So overall, the the, the problem gets worse. The triggers get worse. 
And the pornography use gets worse over time. And and I don't say that as this, a scare tactic because it's not, I, most of the time the pornography is, isn't like so out of control. It's going to destroy every aspect of your life. It's just going to harm certain parts of your life and, and, and make your life and relationships less satisfactory in certain ways. But so the, the best models to use that are the most recent tested models are our acceptance and commitment-based therapies, which is what we use at the Steadfast Institute. And we also incorporate other emotionally focused programs with John Gottman and other components of sexuality. And so obviously I think those programs are the best. They're the most research most research-backed models. And I, I very much think these addiction recovery programs for problematic pornography use, I think they're as dated as outdated as outdated as like, you know, some archaic treatments, like we talked about, like conversion therapy for, for people or, you know, castration or, um, gosh, what was it called back when they used to do the lobotomies, you know, for Mm -hmm. a long time, professionals in the medical industry were saying lobotomies were the best way to treat different mental health conditions. And they pushed and pushed and pushed these models saying that model saying that it was helpful. And then when the evidence came out that it was no longer helpful, the creator of it kept pushing it because he didn't want to give up what he had spent his whole life doing. And I think we're seeing the same problem in places like Utah. Well-meaning professionals have spent their whole life using this model and they can't really accept that it's not accurate, true, or the most helpful. At one time, it might've been the only available model and it was the best thing available, but we now know that it's ineffective and it makes the situation worse and it really needs to be retired. Probably like outlawed, (laughs) but it's still there and people are still going to these programs. Yeah. So you think that we're going to be looking back at like these addiction treatment models, like in what would you say, like five or 10 years or how long do you think it's going to take before we look back and we're like, oh, that was actually (laughs) not helpful. I, I, along with a lot of professionals that have exited in droves from those programs, a lot of therapists already view it that way. Okay. (laughs) So I think there's already a lot of people that do view it that way. I just think when you're in some of these spaces where it's very commonly accepted, people are just still perpetuating that this works, you know, and it's really unfortunate. And and we see this happening all the time. Like if you go back in history and medical sociology, you, you see, you see how harmful treatments are perpetuated and perpetuated and perpetuated because professionals in a field are not continuing education professionals. They're not engaged in research and development, and they just continue using archaic, outdated, and harmful models. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so much easier to use something that you think works rather than put in all the time and effort to to find something that actually works. Will you, before we move on to the next question, will you talk a little bit more about what is acceptance and commitment therapy? What does that look like? Yeah, yeah. So this, there is nothing about acceptance and commitment therapy that, that labels one as an addict. It's really about identifying triggers, emotions, and using healthy, mindful based, mindfulness based strategies to intuitively and more accurately pinpoint how to resolve some of those triggers. And so we're not doing any kind of masking with acceptance and commitment therapy. We're not doing any kind of suppression. We're not doing any kind of like forceful 
or abolishing types of behaviors. What we're looking at is really the triggers and taking pressure off of the triggers in a very scientific way. I'm explaining it in a very simplified way, but we're taking pressures off of the triggers to allow them to basically resolve themselves. And so it's a, it's about a 10 to 12 week program. And what we do, we've automated it for the men's program. We're working on automated for the women's recovery program right now. And what we've done is we've specifically tailored it to each gender and we've done basically it's like this interactive seminar where you're learning a lot about all of these different steps for ACT mixed with EFT, which is emotionally focused therapy, the John Gottman relational principles, as long as like healthy sexuality models and sexual scripts. And we're basically helping people to reconstruct what they know and also resolve some of these triggers that are causing the compulsivity. And it's really just a healing process. And we've we've done something pretty, pretty cool, which is get it down in to 10 roughly hour lessons along with homework and worksheets and interactive therapy for each lesson to walk everyone through that process. So you're no longer like dealing with the subject subjectivity of maybe going to a professional that maybe does it a little different or doesn't really know the topic as well as another one might. And we're really giving you like the pure knowledge, the pure tools that aren't going to be, you know, tampered with by the subjectivity of a different therapist. And then on top of it, you still get a therapist to work with that can customize it for you. And so we've done something that's a little different than is typically done with therapy, but we're doing it because we're specifically dealing with pornography, compulsivity, or reliance. And so we don't work as comprehensive therapists where we address like everything someone's going through. We deal specifically with recovery for this issue. And so if we have someone come to us that maybe has like a trauma, background or something like that, we'll refer out to therapists that deal specifically with that. But as far as what we do is we deal specifically with individuals trying to stop pornography use that they haven't been able to successfully stop on their own. And we're not dealing with, quote, addicts. We're dealing with everyday people. We're dealing with the majority of people that are using pornography, not realizing why they're not able to stop when they want to. And that really represents a large body of people. As far as women, you're getting, you're getting, you know, you're getting almost as many women as you're getting in men. Um, And this is a very common issue. And a lot of people don't even know that they can't stop using their porn use or their porn and porn use until they actually try stopping. And then they realize, oh, wow, I can't stop. Why is that? And we go through, you know, you begin in childhood. These are the processes that happen and we go and walk them through all of that. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, like you always say like, oh yeah, oh, I could stop anytime. I could stop anytime, but you're right. It's so much harder to do when you actually try to and then how long so the acceptance and commitment therapy how long has that like been around and like you have and have you done like studies on people that you have walked through this and like their their long long long-term effects I guess yeah so so gosh you ask really good and hard questions (laughs) (laughs) and I cannot remember the date as far as how long we've known I'd have to go back and reference one of my studies that I published it's out there's I put out the framework for addiction 
people that perceive porn use to be an addiction and the acceptance and commitment therapy model. And I published that, I think it was like in 2019, I have to double check. And then I based it off of research that had come out on using acceptance and commitment therapy for individuals who perceive porn use to be addictive for them. And it had in that one study, just when you were using a basic ACT model, it had like an over 80% recovery rate if when someone was doing it over a 12-week span. And so what we've done is we've not just taken the ACT model, we've multi-layered it with multiple evidence-based therapy strategies on top of being gender specific based off of research on specific genders with pornography using completely customized the program to problematic pornography use, which wasn't even done in the study that ACT was used for. And so with ours, it's it's a much higher than 80% efficacy rate. And we haven't pinpointed like the actual rate of recovery because a lot of the, the programs that we've come out with, they're, they only got released like a year or two ago. And so mm-hmm. we haven't followed these people for like 10 years, right. not yet. But because the ACT model was over 80% effective when it wasn't even customized for porn use for porn recovery, I imagine the rates will be much higher than 80%. Yeah, that is amazing. Like seriously amazing to be able to say over 80%. (laughs) That is so exciting and cool. Okay. Okay. So we're going to shift gears just a little bit. So on your, I was reading through just like the summary of your dissertation and it talks about a correlation between sex education, different types of sex education in the United States, like abstinence only, and how that correlated with with porn use. Can you talk about like the correlation between that? Yeah, so so it was it was an association. And so yeah, so my dissertation study found that individuals or women that received sexuality education in states that offered abstinence-only sexuality education, so states like Utah and other typically red states, that they viewed pornography more frequently than women who received sexuality education in states that received comprehensive sexuality education like California. And so a lot of people would say, oh, maybe it's religion. And so we can, I controlled for religion and when we did control for religion, religion had controlling for religion had the same results. So when religiosity was held constant, meaning that regardless of their religion, if you completely took that out of the equation, the results remained the same. And so abstinence only sexuality education appears to be associated with higher use of pornography in women, higher frequencies of pornography use in women. And so, you know, there there could be other components to this that we don't fully understand, but we can't confidently say what those would be, I guess, statistically. But I could also make the argument that it could be due to cultural narratives within states that have abstinence-only sexuality education. So really, really going to show that in general, whether it's the culture or whether it's the actual abstinence-only sexuality curriculum being taught in schools, when when women and girls are not taught about sexuality, they're going to view pornography more frequently. Uh, and I can't say the absolute reason statistically for that, but we can make some educated guesses as to why that might be. 
Mm-hmm. So, and that is like, like that you have solid evidence for that, right? Like that was what you did your study on and you found the frequency is more. Yeah. We, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I tested, I tested several, several hypotheses and the frequency of pornography was the one that was significant. Okay. That's super interesting. And I wonder if like, I mean, it's also interesting when you look at those, the abstinence only sex ed states, like Utah has the the highest number of teen pregnancies. And I mean, this is also like, again, like I've got to admit what I don't know for sure, but I mean, I can speculate, I guess. And I think that would be because of the abstinence only. And so when you, when they get in those situations where they're having sex, they don't know preventative measures to take or or you were we were talking about yesterday like there there's women who don't even know what stis are in those abstinence only states um yeah no definitely yeah yeah and you know that's a that's a commonly understood thing within sexuality education research is that states that have abstinence only sexual education do result in higher teen pregnancy, higher SDI rates and other unwanted outcomes. And so we're only scraping the surface on what role pornography plays into that. And I think that the study that I did for my dissertation really, really kind of scraped the surface on, on what we're beginning to understand. And I think like you said, it's inevitable that pornography has something to do with what's going on. We don't know exactly how, but we do know that the lack of sexuality education is now leading to higher frequencies of pornography use. We know that it results in higher STI rates. And so there, there inevitably will be some kind of connection between all of these factors, but we don't know exactly what that is yet. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think like, like you said, it can be a scary thing. And I think that a lot of parents nowadays are kind of freaking out because there's a lot of people, including myself, who are saying like, hey, start having these conversations about pornography and about sex with your kids. And they're like, well, where do I even start? Like they, they can't feel like they can't get started because they don't know, they don't know what to say. What would you say to those parents? Yeah, I would say, you know, that therein lies the problem, right? We have this intergenerational, intercultural issue of a lack of resources when it comes to understanding our sexuality, both for men and for women. It's not being thoroughly discussed, even in states with comprehensive sexuality education. We're we're not we're not discussing the topic frequently or in depth enough when it's a driving reason for our existence. You know, sexuality is the root of relationships, partnered relationships, romantic relationships. That's what most people end up spending the majority of their life involved in seeking, obtaining, or being involved in. Yet we spend such a small amount of time really focusing on instruction related to sexuality being the root of those relationships. And so you know, parents, parents, they, they struggle with discussing sexuality with their children. And, you know, they, they aren't entirely to blame for that. That's something that's been intergenerationally perpetuated. And there needs to be, you know, a time that we come out as a society and say, hey, let's start like educating ourselves on it. Let's start talking about it. And I think we're seeing a lot of that happening now, but there's also a lot of you know, confusion on what's medically accurate, what what research says and what social movements are saying. And so there's a lot of confusion about it and there's a lot of fear around it. You know, there's a lot of fear on all sides of the issue. And so what we really need to do is, you know, get down to the basics and get some some basic understandings 
on what what is true and what isn't true about sexuality and how to best learn about it, starting just at the basics, medically accurate information. And that's another thing we're working at at the Steadfast Institute is creating parent education courses that are not only for teens and youth to learn, but also for parents to learn about their own relationship, sexuality within their own relationship, women's sexual pleasure, stimulation, and you know how to teach it for the parents, for the partnered relationships, for the individuals, for single individuals, but then also how they can teach all of these components to their children in hopes that it will help prevent a variety of unwanted outcomes, including but not limited to problematic pornography use. Yeah. And, and I also, I'm curious, I think a lot of times when parents are talking to their kids, and I've heard this with like religious leaders as well, we tend to loop porn use and masturbation as the same problem. What are your thoughts on that and how do we approach that conversation differently? This concludes part one of our episode with Dr. Julie Fraumini-McBride. Head on over to part two to hear the rest of her insights and thank you very much for listening.